Uh, it's wonderful to be um, watching the ways in which uh, the Lord is blessing the FIEC work, and uh, I'm uh, always thrilled to be invited to be just part of this fellowship in small ways. Uh, particularly, I've been asked to speak uh, with you uh, over these sessions uh, exploring a biblical understanding of two related subjects uh, that I believe are vitally important, and I think they are vitally important, particularly in the context of the blessing of God that we seem to be experiencing through the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. Um, uh, I'm going to try and consider these subjects from something like first principles. Um, we'll be spending much more time on the first topic than the second, and we'll be giving particular attention to the concept of Christian unity, uh, which for reasons that I'll spell out a little bit later, I think is uh, very important for FIEC, if I might say so. Uh, I might be completely wrong and not understanding FIEC and where it's up to, and I say that not because I think FIEC is in danger of uh, falling apart or anything like that, or divisions or uh, any difficulty like that, but uh, Christian unity, uh, a gift from God, has various implications that I will uh, be trying to explore, um, uh, how uh, that should be and uh, how it shouldn't be uh, expressed. Um, you've got some notes in the booklet there that I think start on page four of the notes that you've received. Uh, just so you have some idea where we're going, I've just got one long session, really, that I'm dividing into three talks. Uh, I reckon we're going to stop uh, the first session round about the end of point three. This is just helpful, isn't it? When you've got some idea how much longer you've got to endure. Uh, the end of point three is where we'll, we'll, I'm planning, and then uh, uh, at the end of the day, we'll stop at the end of point six and uh, pick up the rest on Wednesday. So that's what I've got in mind, and uh, I hope the notes, uh, the, the notes will roughly correspond to some of the things that I'm going to say and uh, are helpful to you. But let's begin. I want to begin with um, the promise of Jesus. As we begin to think about the church, uh, I can't think of a better place to start than Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church, said Jesus. Since the Lord Jesus Christ is a man of his word, you can be quite sure that that's what he's doing. He said, I will build my church, therefore he is building his church. But what's he doing? What does it mean that he's building his church? What was he promising to do in those words? Those words, I will build my church, were in fact a deliberate echo of 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 13 in the promise that God made to David about David's son. He will build a house for my name. The prophet Nathan uh, bringing the word of God to David, you might remember. He will build a house for my name. Those words, uh, you know your Old Testament story well, uh, those words came to their first fulfilment when Solomon built the temple. Son of David built the temple. The ultimate son of David promised that he would build a different house for God's name. I will build my church. In the way the Bible works, the church that Jesus will build corresponds to the Old Testament temple as type to antitype or shadow to substance. Solomon's temple 
you remember, was, was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 BC. And in the wake of the destruction of the temple that Solomon built, the prophets promised a new temple. Uh, you think most strikingly of Ezekiel 40 to 48, but many other promises that God will build or rebuild. We find a, a theme through the prophets. And then there is the rebuilding of the temple and the walls of Jerusalem in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And all this is in the background when Jesus said, I will build not a physical stone temple this time, but I will build my church. Now the word church, which in Greek is ecclesia, means assembly or gathering. I will build my assembly. I will build my gathering, said Jesus. The most important question is, what is it? Where is it? This church, this assembly, this gathering. And how is the Lord Jesus building it? The metaphor for building, the metaphor of building, which I, I, I suspect very, much, very largely comes out of this promise of Jesus. I will build my church, said Jesus, and it was never forgotten. It's interesting to trace through that metaphor through the New Testament. Uh, it's a little confusing because in our English Bibles it's sometimes translated edify. But whenever you come across the edify or edification words, uh, just translate them as building words because that's what the word is. It's the, exactly the same word. And it becomes a very prominent word, a very important word in the New Testament. And the building work, it's a metaphor, but the building work is gospel preaching. And the building that results is the consequence of gospel preaching, the church, the assembly of those who come to Christ in response to the gospel. So let me illustrate Acts chapter 20, verse 32. I'll, uh, if you're a really quick page turner or able to look up your Bible quickly because you press the buttons rightly, uh, I'll, I'll draw your attention to passages we're going to spend some time on. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm going to be uh, just referring to quite a number. But Acts chapter 20, verse 32, Paul committed the Ephesian churches to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build. And there's the building work. Committed them to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul described himself as an expert builder who in Corinth had laid the foundation, namely Jesus Christ. Others were building on it, but each had better be careful how he builds. He must measure his building work by the one and only foundation that has been laid. And this one we might turn to. Turn to Ephesians 2 for a moment with me. Uh, in Ephesians 2 verses 19 uh, through to 22, we hear a mixture of metaphors uh, that Paul uses to describe the result of this, the results of this building work. Um, picking it up in verse 19, Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Uh, that is the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Just look through there. We have household of God. It's being built on a foundation. We have the whole structure 
We have a holy temple. We have a metaphor. We have a, a dwelling place. All of these are metaphors. What is the reality? What's being spoken of here? What is the household of God? What is the whole structure? What is the holy temple? What is the dwelling place? Where is it? The various metaphors in Ephesians 2 uh, verses 19 and following represent the reality that is consequent on verse 18. I'm reading the passage backwards. It's always better to read it forwards, but we'll do it backwards for, us, for, for this particular occasion. Verse 18, For through him, through Christ, we both, that is Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. We, Jews and Gentiles, both of us, have access in one spirit to the Father through Christ. God's household, this temple, this structure, consists of Jews and Gentiles who have come through Christ to the Father. And that is because God's purpose was, keep reading backwards, I go back to verse 15, middle of verse 15, God's purpose was that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, the two being Jews and Gentiles, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles, to God in, in, in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In other words, uh, much, much we could un, uh, un, unpack in this passage, of course, and I'm just drawing attention to one thing. These and many other expressions in the New Testament, including the word church itself, refer to the gathering God is gathering to himself as the gospel is proclaimed. As the gospel is proclaimed, people are being called into God's presence. People from all sorts of backgrounds, the great division of the human race into Jews and Gentiles, but we, we know from other parts of the New Testament, every other division of the human race, there are no, there are no differences here with regard to this. People are being called, whether they're slaves or masters, whether they're men or women, whether they're whatever race they might be, whatever status they might have, whatever background they might have, the gospel is calling people in exactly the same way through Christ to come to God the Father uh, in the one spirit. And the result is a whole lot of people have come to God the Father. And that whole lot of people come to God the Father is the thing that is called the temple, the dwelling place, the household of God, uh, or the church. The Greek word uh, ecclesia represents a Hebrew word, kahal, uh, and in the background of the New Testament uh, language about that we, that we call church is the Old Testament memory of a day when the Israelites were assembled. It was called the day of the kahal, the day of the assembly. Uh, you could, if you like, call it the day of the church, the Old Testament day of the church. And it was when God had brought the people out of Egypt to himself at Mount Sinai. They never forgot that day, the Israelites, the day when the Lord said to them, I have brought you on eagle's wings, uh, sorry, I bore you on eagle's wings and I've brought you to myself. Uh, Exodus 19 verse 4. They, the Old Testament uh, Israelites, had been gathered together by God to God. He'd brought them to himself. The Old Testament experience of Israel involved their subsequently being scattered. Because you remember the people who had been brought to God, brought in, gathered by God to himself, subsequently disobeyed him. 
departed from him and went after other gods and they incurred God's judgment and God's judgment took the form of their being scattered. Uh, That was the nature of the judgment. Those that had been gathered were scattered. And then after they had been scattered, the prophets brought the promise of God that the day would come when God would gather his people again. Indeed, the scattering of the nation of Israel towards the end of the Old Testament story echoes the scattering of the people after the Tower of Babel in in Genesis chapter 11 verse 9 when the the unity of the human race was shattered by a judgment which was a, a scattering judgment. The promised gathering would reverse not only the scattering of Israel but the scattering of the nations, the scattering of humanity. God was going to do a work of gathering. And the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfilment of the promise that God will gather the scattered. And the church, the gathering, is the consequence of the gospel. This church is called in Hebrews 12 the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. And it's to this church that the readers of Hebrews chapter 12, if you read it carefully, are said to have come. Now, we might regard the word church in this sense as itself a metaphor. Remember the word church means gathering. Uh, Just by the way, if I can go off on a slight tangent here for a moment, one of our real problems in reading our Bibles is the way words have become technical Christian words that were never meant to be technical Christian words. Uh, So the word church, I'm not sure that anybody uses the word church except Christians. And if they do, they think that they're using it as a sort of uh, derivative from the Christian use of church. Now, the the word church, you must understand, is the ordinary word in the Greek language for a gathering, for an assembly. And so it's not a, it'd be much, much better, and I'll illustrate this a little bit later on, much, much better if our English Bibles didn't have the word church in them at all. Because in the English language, church is a technical term applying to the Christian religion, And it has meanings that have nothing to do with the New Testament. We'll see some of those a bit later. Uh, Like a building, um, a literal building, I mean, the church on the corner, uh, and and a number of other other meanings. So when I use the word church, and I don't know that I really will succeed in getting it out of our vocabulary, have a go at doing that and see if you can see how far you get in the Christian community. Um, But it would clarify our thinking if we avoided using it. I'm not going to avoid using it this morning. Um, But uh, when you hear the word... Uh, understand you're hearing the word that means an assembly, a gathering, and uh, an ordinary word in that sense. The fact that it's an ordinary word doesn't mean it's an ordinary thing. Uh, We're talking about the gathering that God is gathering, uh, the the gathering that God is gathering to himself. Uh, It's an extraordinary gathering, uh, but the word itself uh, oughtn't to mislead us in that way. Um, But the word itself, church, gathering, is itself a metaphor for those who have become God's sons, those in whom God's spirit now dwells, those who by that spirit have the same access to God the Father. And because we can understand we've come in, you have come to God, I have come to God. Um, There are Christians in India who've come to to God the Father. There are Christians in Africa who've come to God the Father. All over the world there are people who've come to God the Father Uh, and come into his presence. So you can see that that can be described as a gathering. And that's what this word means. Uh, It is the gathering that God is gathering to himself. 
This church is real. When I say that the language is metaphorical, it doesn't mean it's not real. It's as real as our relationship to God. Have you come into God the Father's presence or haven't you? Well, if you come into God the Father's presence, you've joined this gathering that he is gathering. Uh, It's as real as uh, the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is real. So this gathering is real because we really have come into the presence of God. We really have come into uh, this relationship with God. However, it's not a physical or a visible reality. Any more than the forgiveness of sins is a physical or visible reality. It is known by faith. Um, I'm interested that the historic creeds put it like this. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Just put the Holy Catholic to one side for a moment if there's any confusion there. But I believe in the church. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, says the Apostles' Creed. This church is not to be... This, church that Je- this is the church that Jesus is building. He said he'd do it, he's doing it. This church that we're speaking of is not to be identified with and is no way dependent on any institution in this world. The church that Jesus is building, he is building. It's real, it's substantial. Just can't see it, that's all. Uh, And it is not to be, uh, uh, underline again, it's not to be identified and it is in no way dependent on any institution in in this world. This church is being built on the foundation that has already been laid, the Lord Jesus Christ. And every person who comes to Christ and comes through Christ to the Father joins this church and is a member of this church, is a part of this church. Uh, Let me keep filling out this uh, understanding for a few moments. Uh, You can turn to 1 Peter, chapter 1 with me. For a moment where you'll notice if you have 1 Peter 1 in front of you that in verse 1, the people that Peter is writing to are explicitly scattered. Uh, The word in my ESV here is the dispersion. That is, that they're, they're people that physically, they're scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. It's a rather large area. These people are all over the place. But he says to them in chapter 2, verse 4, As you come to him, the Lord Jesus, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built not built up, just built, as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. The scattered believers didn't belong to any physical gathering. As far as I'm aware, they didn't belong to any organisation, any Christian organisation in this world, but they belonged together by virtue of having come to Christ, the living capstone. Many of them may never have even seen each other. They may not have known each other. But nonetheless, the reality is they are being built into one spiritual house. One of the remarkable metaphors for this reality that we're all familiar with is that of the body. Uh, I'm not going to explore that image in any detail now, but to note that when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, there is one body, he must, it seems to me, be referring to the reality that I've been trying to describe here. 
This body is the body of Christ, which he will present to himself holy and blameless in Ephesians 5 verse 27. However, this church has been made holy and clean by Christ's own death for her. Again, Ephesians 5, 25 to 26. I take it that this is the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which John saw coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband in Revelation 21, verse 2. Let me try and sum up this point. The church that Jesus is building is a spiritual reality. It is the gathering that God is gathering to himself as the gospel is preached. Got that? Clear? A second point, B. This church is the end, not a means to another end. Very important to see this. A very brief point, but I I think an important one. Understood in this way, it follows that this church we're talking about, this gathering that God is gathering to himself, is the end, the goal of God's purposes. It's not the means to another end. Put that another way. The church is what results from the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit, rather than being the instrument or the agent of that preaching. The work of the gospel is the building of this church rather than the work of this church being something else beyond itself. Uh, This is important to take on board as we reflect on what we're doing and as we reflect on the church we believe in, the church we belong to, the church we are members of and our tasks in this world. This church of which we've been speaking, I'm going to say other things about the church in a few moments, but this church of which we've been speaking, the gathering that God is gathering to himself, that's not a church with a mission. It's the end product of God's mission. But this church has not been built in order to carry out some other task beyond serving before the throne of God day and night. This church is where the unity of humanity, which was the purpose of the Creator from the very beginning, is re-established on its proper foundation. People are brought back into the right relationship with God for which they were made. That's what this church is. Therefore, point C. If this is the church of Jesus Christ, I hope it's clear that it's only confusing to call the thing we often call a denomination a church. Um, I think this is probably a point that doesn't need to be laboured among FIEC leaders. Uh, It is nonetheless important to understand properly, and I'm going to make something of it for FIEC folk uh, a little bit later. I'll I'll take the liberty of doing that, and then I can go back home and you can... Do what you like with it. Uh, A little later, I'm going to uh, try to explore explicitly uh, what a denomination is, and I've got a reason for doing that with you, uh, because I'm going to be suggesting that that's what you are. Um, I just thought I'd make myself popular, you know. Um, We're going to explore what a denomination is, what it's for, as well as what it's not and what it's not for. Uh, Because I want to suggest to you that there is a theological danger, and here, you know, know, I'm I'm going to retire, so... um, I might as well just 
say what I think and see what happens to me. I think that there is a theological danger in independence. And I'd be encouraging you to reflect on what you mean by independence in the title of your fellowship. Uh, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying there's a danger in it. Uh, At this point, uh, without, might I say, uh, denigrating denominations, I hope you'll see in due course I'm not doing that. But we should be very clear that although there there is another use for the words we've been talking about in the New Testament, we're going to come to that, these words like the body of Christ, the church, um, or any of the other terms that are used for this reality are never, ever in the Bible used for anything like what we call a denomination. A denomination is not a church. Uh, let me put that simply, if you haven't got it yet, I know you all have, but nevertheless I'll put it. Uh, the Presbyterian Church, the Uniting Church, the Baptist Church, the Anglican Church, which is the one that I'll keep having a go at because I'm safe there, none of these is a church in any New Testament sense of that word. Now, of course, this could easily uh, degenerate in just a semantic debate. After all, words develop various meanings over time, uh, and any English dictionary will tell you that one of the meanings of the English word church is an organisation like the Anglican Church of Australia. The point I'm making, however, is that that meaning of the word church isn't found in the Bible. And it's a completely non-theological use of the word. Uh, That is to say, the entity we call, and let me just take the Anglican Church of Australia as my example, the entity we call the Anglican Church does not carry any of the theological significance associated with the word church. I'll make certain qualifications to that statement a little later, but I won't withdraw it. Not unless you show me I'm wrong, and I hope I'll withdraw it then. But uh, the Anglican Church is not a church, it's not the church, Uh, And everything we learn about the church that Jesus is building does not apply to a denomination, does not apply uh, to um, uh, the Anglican church, the Baptist church or anything like that. The church that Jesus is building is a different thing altogether and a different kind of thing altogether from a denomination. However, main point two. It's not a different kind of thing altogether from something else. So we've got this, the church that Jesus is building. I will build my church. How do you envisage that? What, how do you see what Jesus is doing? If you can see in your mind's eye people being brought into the presence of God by the proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, people repenting and coming to the living, into the presence of the living God, becoming children of God, that's the church that Jesus is building. It is not the it is not uh, sorry a denomination is not that, but there is something else that is a little like that church. Imagine this: the, the gospel comes into a locality, perhaps for the first time, by an evangelist or a believer who moves there, and the news about Jesus is heard perhaps through personal testimony, perhaps through gospel preaching, and one, two, three, people are converted as God calls them to himself in repentance and they put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As they come to God through Christ, they're being built into his church. At the same time, since they're in the same locality, they're drawn into fellowship with one another. 
by God's Holy Spirit who indwells them. When these members of God's household who now share the one Holy Spirit and who are now sons of the one Father come together into one another's company to meet with each other, to meet together with their Lord, to continue to be built into the church that Jesus is building as they speak the word of Christ to one another, there in that gathering you get a glimpse of the church that Jesus is building. There, the church that Jesus is building can be seen in this world because it's the same reality, you see. There is a group of people who are being called into God's presence by the gospel and therefore being called together. Notice that that group that I'm talking about is not the church, because it happens to be 11am on a Sunday morning and there's a notice board outside that announces churches on at that time. The gathering of believers is the church because it is the gathering of those that in that place whom God has gathered and is gathering to himself. The local gathering is therefore called, New Testament example, the church of God as it is in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. The church at Antioch, Acts 13, verse 2, and so on. Those who mistreat the members of the church in Corinth are said to despise the church of God, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 22. The Ephesian elders were to be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. That's the gathering in Ephesus, is the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Um, I've got a quote here from P.T. Forsyth, which uh, I think captures the point. It's not strictly to correct, correct to speak of the Corinthian church, but of the church of Corinth, the church as it comes to the surface there, the church as it becomes visible in that place. And the church in a private house was as much the church as the whole Christian community of Corinth. Now, this use of the word church or the gathering is the most common use of the word in the New Testament. That is, for a gathering of people gathered by the gospel into God's presence in a particular place. In this sense, of course, there are many churches. In the first sense, there's only one church. Jesus is building one church. In this sense, there are many churches. Many places, in other words, where God has gathered people to himself. So that when these local gatherings are referred to collectively, they're not the church, they're the churches. The churches of God, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 16. The word church in the singular, sorry to be a little bit grammatical and technical here, is really particularly helpful for those who've been on aeroplanes overnight and that kind of thing. And it just, you, if, if anyone needs a coffee, feel free to get up and wander over there and get one. But the word church when it's used in the singular, applies either to the one church, the spiritual house, which you can't see, or to a local gathering in a particular place. The common modern expression, um, you, you, you get it in the textbooks, the New Testament church, uh, or the early church, where the singular word church is used collectively for the churches of the period, actually has no parallel in any New Testament writer. 
There are one or perhaps two texts that could be taken that way, but I don't think they should be. If I just uh, let me go off on another little tangent for a moment. A, a little while ago, I got hold of uh, William Tyndale's New Testament. Has anyone read the book, the biography of Tyndale? What's it called? If God Spare My Life. Anyone read that? Recommended? It's a brilliant, it's a terrific book. Uh, the story of William Tyndale. If you, if you want a summer read, there's uh, among many, many books that would be good to read. There's one of them. One of the peculiarities when William Tyndale, so this predates, of course, the authorised version. Uh, one of the things that William Tyndale did when he translated uh, the, the New Testament into English, uh, ended up dying for, the, for his efforts, uh, you, you, if, you, if you know his story, uh, there, were, there were a number of particular words that he, uh, he specifically went out of his way to correct in previous efforts at, 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 at translation of the scriptures or parts of the scriptures into English. So the word, uh, and most of these we, we just take for granted now because they've come into our tradition, uh, the word priest, he took the word, uh, he, he would not translate the word presbyteros as priest, he translated it as presbyter or elder. Uh, the word for repentance, uh, he wouldn't translate it as penance, uh, the Catholic sacrament, but he translated it as repentance. Uh, the word for love in 1 Corinthians 13, he wouldn't translate as charity, he translated it love. Uh, and there were a couple of others, I've just forgotten what they were. Uh, but one of them was the word ecclesia, which he refused to translate church because of its associations even then uh, with uh, the institution, uh, with what we call the Roman Catholic Church in particular. Uh, and he insisted on translating the word congregation, wherever it appears. And, uh, uh, sorry, this is a sideline story. When the authorised version was translated, the, the King James Version that then becomes the sort of uh, Big Daddy translation that everything else has been derived from in, in English translation since, uh, there, was, uh, there, was, there were political constraints put on the translators. And one of them was that they were to translate Ecclesia as church. Uh, this was for political reasons, not for theological ones. And as far as I'm aware, you might know some other translations, I don't think any translation, certainly not any widely used translation since Tyndale's, has translated Ecclesia accurately with a word that means a group of people. Because that's what the word means. Uh, can I just illustrate this? Um, Tyndale's translation is, is readily available in print and it's worth getting it. Just, just listen to this in Tyndale's translation and see how it sounds different and the difference is right, okay? You've got to, uh, Jesus' words uh, in Tyndale's translation to, um, to Peter, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my congregation. Sounds different, doesn't it? Um, I've got 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2 here. I've just pulled out uh, three passages at random. Uh, not at random, three passages I wanted to read to you. Um, <laughs> Colossians 1 verse 2, uh, Paul, by vocation, an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and brother Sosthenes unto the congregation of God, which is at Corinth. Feel different? Try this one. This is the one that I think is most powerful. Uh, this is the Sydney Anglicans text, you know. Wives submit to their husbands. Uh, please, if you want to discuss that subject, let's talk about it over lunch or something. But uh, just, just listen to the use of the word in this, in this context. Uh, this is Tyndale's translation from Ephesians 5. Women, 
submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the wife's head, even as Christ is the head of the congregation. And the same is the saviour of the body. Therefore, as the congregation is in subjection to Christ, likewise let wives be in subjection to their husbands in all things. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the congregation and gave himself for it to sanctify it and cleanse it in the fountain of water through the word uh, and to make it unto himself a glorious congregation without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, um, but that it should be holy and without blame. Feels different, doesn't it? Um, Let me read on. Uh, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. Uh, He that loveth his wife loveth loveth himself, for no man ever ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it uh, as the Lord doth the congregation. For we are members of his body, uh, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great secret, but I speak between Christ and the congregation. Nevertheless, uh, and, and, and so he goes on. Now, that translation uh, seems to me is so enormously helpful in getting out of our heads uh, an idea that is so much in our minds because of our history, because of the history of the English language and all those sort of things when we hear the word church. So it'd be great if somebody would uh, come up with the money and we'll come up with a new English translation and we'll, we'll, we'll fix the word church properly. But the word church, to our ears is almost always misleading. Uh, and you've got to sort of do the, the, the double jig of, of defining the term. Uh, whenever you hear it within the Bible, uh, it means a gathering. Either that great gathering of people that are gathered in God in his presence or a, a local manifestation of that where people have been gathered into God's presence. Now, I've got a couple of points to make here. Uh, a, B and so on. A, the visible and the invisible church. The two senses in which I'm suggesting the New Testament speaks of the church is very close uh, to a distinction that the reformers made between the visible and the invisible church, but it's not exactly the same. It is important to understand that the reformers uh, did not think that they were talking about two churches. You probably heard the language, the visible church and the invisible church. They didn't think they were talking about two uh, churches when they used those terms. They they didn't think they were talking about the real church, which is invisible, and the visible church, which is not really the church at all. No, rather, visible and invisible in their language were two aspects of the one church. That which it wears, I'm reading a quote here, I think, from Jim Packer. That which it wears to the eyes of men who see only the appearance, that's the visible church, and that which it has to the eyes of God, who looks on the heart and knows things as they really are, and whose estimate of spiritual realities, unlike ours, is unerring. However, what I'm suggesting to you here is an understanding that does go a little further than the Reformers did in the emphasis that the visible church is the actual gathering of believers in a particular place. It's not surprising that those who hold that the stuff of denominational life, things like how you organise a denomination, things like uh, liturgies that you authorise, things like sacraments, things like canon law, things like synods and that sort of thing, uh, people for whom who think that that's what Christianity is all about generally look on evangelicals, and certainly this evangelical, and regard us as having an undeveloped doctrine of the church. 
because we don't talk very much about synods and canon law and sacraments and liturgies and polity and all that kind of thing. However, I would argue that the opposite is true. To shift the focus of church and thinking about church from the spiritual reality that Jesus is building and its local expression in the congregation is to shift attention from the church of God to something quite different. When then is a church a church? Historically, uh, Christians have struggled with this because not every group who claims to be a church can be called a church, can it? And historically, uh, Christian thinkers have tried to come up with things that are sometimes called the marks of the church uh, as an attempt to... The, 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 the church, uh, a gathering of people must be this, this, this and this before it can claim to be the church. Uh, forgive me being a, an Anglican for a moment, will you, and just bear with me. Uh, this is Article 19 of the 39 articles that the Anglicans developed, uh, Thomas Cranmer gave us uh, so long ago. The visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men, by which he meant people, in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments are duly ministered according to Christ's ordinance in all those things that are of necessity and requisite to the same. In other words... Uh, Thomas Cranmer said, the church of Jesus Christ is a gathering of people of true faith in God. Such a gathering will have the word of God spoken and perhaps such a gathering should include sacraments, but that's a subject for another day. My point is that the church is complete wherever two or three have been gathered by God to himself by his word. You have two or three people who've met together the reality of church, that is, having been gathered together because we've been gathered by God to himself, the reality of church is there. The trappings that we have added over the years and now associate with the word church do not add anything essential or even all that important to the reality of church. We must stop thinking that the home Bible study group is less church than the gathering on Sunday morning. The home Bible study group or any other gathering of believers in the name of Christ lacks nothing of any consequence as the church of God. Now, of course, conversely, it's important for us to understand, particularly when we have something to do with the historic denominations, a gathering of unbelievers who have not been gathered by God to himself, who are not children of God, where the word of God is never heard, is not a church. No matter how many ecclesiological credentials it might have, no matter what claim it might have to apostolic succession or liturgical magnificence or irreproachable order or impeccable denominational credentials or whatever, nothing of the New Testament doctrine of the church applies to such a gathering. It's of no more consequence than a golf club. Indeed, it is of markedly less significance than a golf club because of its blatant hypocrisy. Now, friends, it doesn't take Einstein to recognise that what I'm presenting here is what is sometimes scathingly called congregationalism. What amazes me is that in certain circles this has become a term of abuse. 
But it is no shame to recognise the glory of the gathering that God is gathering. The shame is to seek that glory where it is not to be found, namely in the institutions of men. Well then, what is the Anglican Church, the Baptist Church, the Presbyterian Church, or for that matter, the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches? It's quite an important question for us to reflect on. What is the spiritual reality of this fellowship? And I'm, I will be arguing with you in due course. There's basically the same question. I'm much happier with the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches than I am with all the other ones, but that's another matter, and we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit. But it's basically the same question. See, theoretically, what we have in the denominations or this fellowship is an association or a network of some churches. That's all. The association, the network, is not the church. It's not even a church. You don't see the church that Jesus is building when you see the organisation called the Anglican Church. And I know you haven't been in existence long enough, but it'll come. It'll come within 10, 20 years uh, if you continue to grow and, and, and to be the, the, this fellowship of independent... No one thinks that the fellowship itself with its structures and its conference and whatever else goes to, to make this fellowship work and links you together. No one in this fellowship, I suspect, thinks that's the church. But what I'm suggesting to you, the time will come when they will. Because so it'll certainly think that about the historic denominations that have been around for long enough. The churches that are associated with each other in any particular association are no more churches. They're not better churches than those that are not so associated. So there's nothing more church by being in, you know, I know you all believe this, you're not, a, you're not more a church if you're an Anglican church than if you're an independent church. But neither are you more a church uh, if you belong to the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches or if you don't. That makes no difference to the reality of church. Uh, and I suspect that's absolutely clear. Neither are you less. You're not less church because you happen to be an Anglican church. Now, you, that might be harder to persuade you. Uh, than if you belong to, to some other group. Not by virtue of, being, of the association and the nature of the, the association. Uh, now, uh, I suspect that uh, FIEC church leaders understand this both ways uh, very well. In practice, of course, the so-called Anglican church, and I'll keep on illustrating what I'm saying by reference to the Anglican church because that's the one that I'm associated with. Uh, in, in practice, the Anglican church is an association of groups only some of which are actually churches in the New Testament or even the 39 Articles definition of the term. There are uh, a large number of groups that call themselves churches where the word of God is never heard, true faith in God is non-existent, and part of our dilemma, those of us who are in the historic denominations, and part of the reason, I suspect, that we need the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches and the like, uh, is finding ourselves in associations that appear to have become dominated by groups like that. That's certainly true of the Anglican Communion worldwide. The Anglican Communion worldwide, is an, in theory, is meant to be an association of churches, an international association of churches. But now the, 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 the government... The, the running of that organisation, that association, is in the hands, very largely, 
of people who do not believe the gospel, who are not Christian, fundamentally, not born again, uh, and the, uh, the decisions that are made, uh, and, the, and the, it, 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 it's become dominated by groups that are not churches, not in the New Testament words. So what are we, what are we doing in this association? Well, that's one of the big questions we've got to work out. And one of the things we might do is be really, really pleased about the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. But the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches mustn't dream that the dangers that it's, you know, taken us, might have taken us a few centuries to fall into the mess we're in in the Anglican denomination, that you won't face them in due course. And it's really great to, to, to open our eyes and to think those things through, one of the things that I hope that we'll be doing later this afternoon. Now, once we've said, however, that the association, the network, is not a church is not the church, one of the things that I do is to reflect on the question whether it is as big a problem as we sometimes suppose to be associated with groups that are not the church, to be in this association. What precisely is the problem when some or even many of the groups forming a denomination have lost the gospel? Of course it's a problem for that group, but is it a problem for me and my church that has this association? The answer is not obvious. And the answer will differ sometimes from church to church, from situation to situation. But it's not obvious that... that, that, that Sorry, there there isn't just one answer to that question, I don't think. And I'm going to come back to that question in due course. Church unity. This is our uh, last... And I'm going to race through this and uh, see if we can then have time for some questions or comments that uh, you'd like to share. Yep. Jim, I've never, ever done anything contrary to your instructions. <laughs> We're going to questions now. I mean, what, what, what else can we do? Let's go. Yep. It's a task given to Christians, it seems to me. Um, it's, not task gi- it's not a task given to an organisation. Uh, often we talk about the mission of the church. We're talking about an organisation that then has a mission. Now I'm saying the church, is, that's not the kind of thing that the church, and again, the language is, is confusing. But when... Uh, the reality that the church is, I don't think is adequately appreciated when we think of it as a, 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 as a group of people that have been brought together for a task. Now, when a group of Christians have been brought together and the Christians have on their heart the winning of the lost, then of course we're going to cooperate and do stuff together. But recognise the wonder of what has happened. You and I meet, and we meet as people who've been brought into, into the presence of God by the blood of Christ. Uh, this has been accomplished we have been bound together to one another. And what a, what a, that is the wonder. We haven't been brought together so that we can do a job together. Now, having been brought together, we may well start praying for the world and the community around us. And we may well work out ways in which we can reach the community around us with the gospel. But we've got to recognise, I think, uh, the wonder of what the Lord Jesus is building. He didn't say, I will build my church in order to reach the world. 
I will reach the world and build my church. And so he sends evangelists. Evangelists may or may not be um, uh, people who have been authorised by some group of people or other. Uh, Evangelists are people who preach the gospel, sent by the Lord Jesus to do so. Uh, It's not the church's job, it's the Christian's job. I think think the, the distinction will have practical consequences at various points as we think things through. But if we neglect the reality of the church, um, it's, when we think in terms of the mission of the church too much, uh, it seems to me we often neglect what the church is meant to be and we turn it into a group uh, that, 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 that is here in order to do stuff. And uh, what, what we are meant to be uh, as God's people together uh, is important. Any other questions? Comments? Yep. Um, thank you Uh, perhaps I want to say primarily um, but the church see the church um, the really big reality that is all the people through history that are are in God's presence uh, that is not a group of that, that is not a reality that has been brought into God's presence in order to do a task now, when we have a local manifestation of that, uh, I take it it's called the church because of that great reality. Now, that a group of Christians might have a task. I don't, no, no problems with that. But the, um, the, the, the spiritual reality that is the church is the spiritual reality of people being brought together. It's sort of like saying, have, have your sins been forgiven so that you'll do something? No, your sins being forgiven is a, is a wonder. It's a reality. The, the church has been built as an end in itself. It's the church in itself that displays God's wisdom to the to the universe. Uh, it's not that. Now, there's. Am I making any sense? Yeah, go on. And, I, and friends, I, I don't want this to be, to be pushed too far or anything like that. I'm trying to get us to appreciate the wonder of the existence of a church uh, and to appreciate that that in itself is a wonderful, precious thing. I'm not for a moment suggesting that that group of people who are the church uh, are wrong if they put their heads to what, what ought we to be doing together. But I'm just seeing that there, there is something wonderful that has been... It's like, I'll draw the analogy with forgiveness. My sins have been forgiven. I want to really appreciate the wonder of that, the cost of that, the grace of that, without immediately jumping to the task of... Now, as a forgiven sinner, should I be doing stuff? Sure, I should. But appreciate that, 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 that the doing stuff is not the purpose of the forgiveness. It might be a consequence of the forgiveness, but the forgiveness is an end in itself. So it seems to me with the church. Yep. Yeah, there are multiple churches. I, I think that what you've got is a little denomination. I'll be talking about, uh, talking about what a denomination is later on. You know, it, it, Christians who come into one another's presence and who get to know one another, who care for one another, that's a church. Uh, a group of such churches 
uh, even a very small group of two or three with one pastor overseeing them all, uh, is not a church. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mini denomination. We'll talk about what denominations are later. Craig. Yes, I've just avoided that language because I think it can be a little bit confusing. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about all the people who've been gathered into God's presence. Okay, coming into God's presence. I'm talking about the thing that uh, is sometimes called a heavenly church. And yeah. reality. Oh, absolutely. In yeah, where, where God the Father is. Have you come into God's presence? Uh, Ephesians 2 kind of language that uh, through Christ, in the one spirit, we've come to the Father. Uh, now, we're, we're using language that can be a little, little bit... We're using spatial language. And, we, of course, we, when we talk about... Uh, do you mean in heaven? Do you mean it, Well, heaven's not so much a physical place, is it? It's not a certain distance from earth or anything like that. Uh, but it's the presence of God. Yeah. Uh, well, there, there, there and there. Go ahead. Of course. Of course. You don't cease to be brothers and sisters. Uh, see, but, the, but you, again, we, we, we've invested the word church with so much um, freight. Uh, are you still the gathering when you're not gathered? In one sense, you are. You're still related to one another. You're still brothers and sisters. You've still got obligations to one another. Uh, you're not, strictly speaking, the gathering when you're not gathering. Um, but I, I'm not for a moment su suggesting that the, the, the reality of the relationships, the one spirit we share, uh, our sonship and, 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 and our, our family relationship is, is, is somehow shattered by the fact that we're not actually together. Yeah? Uh, yes, brother. Thank you. Uh, I will touch on that a little bit later on. Um, and there have been various reactions, and I think it, it, it varies from situation. It varies as to what the association is doing. So supposing we had a uh, hundred faithful churches who were, you know, FIEC has a hundred faithful churches that, uh, that, that, that are joined, that, that are linked together in this way. Um, and you start to have your doubts about one of the members of that, 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 that association. Um, you may have the mechanism to kick them out. You may not. Um, but, but suppose there were two that you had your doubts about. Some of your members have decided that they're actually off the, ra off the rails, but not the majority of people haven't come to that conclusion. Are all the other churches somehow contaminated? No, the association's not a sort of association where you get contaminated because you talk to people, because you meet together. Now, at some point, you might say, well, at some point the, the, the pendulum has swung and it's time to leave. And I think there must be a point when you would choose to leave. Uh, some people will say, well, I'm not leaving. They're the ones who've, they're the ones who've changed. I'm not, giving, I'm not walking away from this. The, the, the ones who've, uh, who've abandoned our association and abandoned the faith, they're the ones that should leave. But I'm not leaving even when I'm only the last one there. So th I, I think that there are different responses to that situation that can have integrity. Um, 
uh, I don't think there's just a, a one answer. If you, it's, it's a little bit like uh, a church itself. If you're looking for the pure church, I often say don't join it because you'll mess it up. Um, there, there is no such thing as a pure church. There is no such thing as a pure association of churches and if we, in this world. Uh, and if, if, they, if those are our standards, then we'll, we'll keep on splitting. Um, but if we recognise you can be associated with people you disagree with, even disagree with profoundly, you can keep talking to people like that, as long as your association doesn't mean I agree with them. And I'll tell you what, um, the Anglican Association certainly doesn't mean I agree with them. 